Welcome to UQ Yarns, where I talk with people who are doing amazing work in improving the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. My name is Marie Toombs. I'm a very proud Gamilaroi Cooma woman with traditional lands in northwestern New South Wales and southwestern Queensland. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to acknowledge the Turrbal and the Yagara peoples of Mianjin, otherwise known today as Brisbane. I pay my respect to their custodianship of the lands. I pay my respect to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country and recognise their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. In the last episode for 2020, I yarn with Dr. Jeff Sperling, a good friend of mine who has worked for a number of years in Indigenous health. He is currently a senior lecturer with UQ and a GP at Anala Indigenous Health Service. So I just chat with Jeff today about his journey into Indigenous health and how his pathway has shaped his career. So I'd like to welcome you today, Jeff, and thank you for your time. Oh, thanks, Maria. It's a real honour to be here. Thanks for asking me. Okay, thank you. All right, well, let's start first of all with, um, yeah, where you come from? Who's your family? Where'd you grow up? Um, okay, so I was born in Brisbane and uh, went away for a bit to Sydney when I was really young. Uh, came back and did all my schooling in Brisbane and then moved around for 10 years after uni as a junior doctor and worked in various places. So where did you go? That's a lot. Oh, um, Ten years of moving around. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I guess... Um, uh, so I got balloted to Mackay, which was uh, not where I wanted to go as an intern, but um, ended up being a really awesome experience. I did... I, did, I wanted to go to Cairns, um, but ended up in Caboolture and then decided actually, you know, it's a really good opportunity to break away from the family and, you know, just go somewhere you know, sort of strike out, I guess, on my own. And Mackay was a bit of an adventure. So you were balloted to Mackay? So yeah, so, so at the end of, so my preference was Cairns. Yeah. Um, and friends of mine were going to Cairns. And then at the end of the night, I had Caboolture, which kind of would have been safe, but just, I don't know, just, it didn't have enough adventure in it for me, I guess. <laughs> and it was just down um, the road. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And there was still a spot in Mackay. So, um, Oh, I see. Okay. And so I ended up take, deciding to take that for my for my first year. And it was great because it was um, not really into the big hierarchy of the big hospitals. Like, um, I don't really necessarily really like the culture of PA or Royal, but I'm sure there are awesome people here. <laughs> <laughs> but Mackay was brilliant because there was lots of country folk and a real variety of um, experience, especially as an intern, you got to do a lot. Um, really great group of expats mm -hmm. from all around the world. And uh, I think it yeah, really set me up in many ways. It certainly made me very independent. You know, I had to sort of look after myself completely, which I probably hadn't done properly, um, certainly not for a whole year. So that was good. Okay. Um, and then came back to Brisbane for a little while before um, going overseas, doing a fair bit of travel. And I, I guess throughout, um, towards the end of med school and, and at the beginning of my doctor years, I wanted to work, I had a dream of working for Medicine on Frontier. So... I did a Diploma of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene in London with a view to doing that. And oh, wow. that was pretty outstanding because there were people just from all over the world um, coming, into, coming into London to do that course. Um, there are a couple of other Australians who are about my age. I was very young at the time. So we were probably the youngest, most crazy 
at the time, I know it's hard to believe. I probably wasn't that crazy. Maybe I was, I don't know. <laughs> hard to imagine I was ever crazy, but... Um, but didn't you just tell me before this interview you went for a how many kilometre run? Sure. <laughs> I guess it comes out in, in various ways as you, yeah. as you get older. But yeah, so just, um, I really enjoyed the medicine. It was really interesting stuff to learn about. And um, yeah, just the, the people from all over the world in that, mm. in that space in London was, was pretty amazing. Okay, so tell me about that course because I've not heard of it. I can't even pronounce it. So what was it about? <laughs> um, so it's really, it's tropical medicine. Uh, yeah. It's hilarious that I've got a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene. I'm sure many people would question that. But um, the tropical medicine part anyway was just really interesting because it was stuff that you don't cover really much at med school. And um, yeah, it had a lot of stuff to do with humanitarian aid work, which I guess fitted with the MSF type of thing and and also um, it's interesting of course that, that, that it's called tropical medicine and we're doing it in London and there's all the colonial side to that you know why isn't there a temperate medicine and you know why aren't that you know there's the whole colonization stuff already starting to those questions were starting to turn over in my mind already I guess and then also with humanitarian aid work there's the whole savior you know complex and what is altruism and all those sorts of questions so that was interesting. So where did those thoughts come from? Like, was it, like, did you come from a family that were very social justice? And so that led to these types of kind of thoughts and challenges and self-reflection? Or was it prompted by when you started working up in Mackay and then you're, like, what, what brought it about? Look, I think um, a lot of it is family related. So mum and dad both came from rural backgrounds. Some, some of the first in their family to go to uni. Um, they both talk about how they grew up or were met, when they met at Union College at the University of Queensland, they were involved. Union College. Yes. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so they were involved in, you know, the Vietnam War marches and, and things like that. So I guess they would have instilled a lot of that sort of thinking in me. Um, but I don't know that everyone is, just, I, I don't know, I guess I've always had an innate sense of, um, uh, like it never, the, the injustice of some people's poverty has always really bothered me, um, or, or, you know, in, inequity, I guess. Um, you know, why is it that I've ended up, it just struck me fairly early on that I was inc insanely lucky, really. Like to be, to be born in Australia and, uh, and white and male, like, you know, these sort of things, started to, you know, dawn on me reasonably early on, I think, um, along with that social justice um, upbringing. And uh, it just, yeah, it really made me angry, I guess, that people, um, you know, w would be treated unfairly, you know, just by virtue of where they were born or how they looked or all that sort of stuff. So I think, I think that's, I'm not sure where that came from. That's just always been something I've always felt incredibly like insanely lucky basically mm -hmm. and wanted to make the most of most of that and um, and I think the other thing is just um, like I really enjoy finding out about other people's cultures like there's something um, that, I, that really intellectually fascinates me about that you know, I really enjoy travel I've always really enjoyed languages um, like I really enjoyed languages at school. Um, um, I've still got a, I still, even though I work mainly clinically in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health, I still have some Spanish people from my time. I did end up working with MSF. Um, and I still have some people who, um, who, who follow me. Um, and so we have consults in Spanish and stuff like that. So I just think um, it's a combination, I think, of that, um, just being really interested in other people's cultures and, mm -hmm. and just um, thinking the inequities really un was really unfair and wanting to do stuff about that. 
Well, it sounds like you had a pretty strong grounding in your parents and their sort of actions, I suppose, like with, like you said, the Vietnam marches and, yeah. So did you, when did you start to voice your opinions about inequity? Like, can you remember a defining moment where you stood up and went, you know, that's not right or, or challenged somebody? Um, I think through um, my junior doctor years, probably more than anything. Um, you know, you, I worked a lot in provincial Queensland and, um, you know, I don't like feeding into the stereotypes about Queensland being redneck, but there are a lot of situations and it wasn't so much patients, it was often staff in hospitals who would say racist things and uh, that really bothered me. Um, I did end up working in Cairns <laughs> uh, a year or two later and uh, ended up in a bit of a war, writing war with the Cairns Post about the way they portrayed Aboriginal people. You know? Would you, did you, were you one of those ones that did the crank. to the editor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, I wouldn't do that now, I don't think, but <laughs> I don't know, I was just the, it was the, uh, you know, academic, I guess, trying to find a way out. I was, bef you know, still very junior doctorate and before general practice training or academic training, but it was just, yeah, I just thought the way they portrayed Aboriginal people it was just egregious. It was just completely wrong. And, um, you know, I didn't have any sophisticated thinking about it. I just thought it was wrong and wrote to them about it. And they published it to, I guess, because it was controversial. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know, I changed much. Can you give an example of one of those pieces? I'd oh, love to read one. I think that'd be amazing. <laughs> the scary thing is they're probably discoverable, but um, I've, I've forgotten. But there were at least three or four. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also just, you know, like, I remember, you know, this conversation in the doctor's mess, this doctor was going on about the way someone was interact, you know, acting and, and it, I'm sure it had a racial element to it. And I was just like, you know, why did you do medicine if you... And she was like, and she stopped and she went, you know what, I don't know. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because at least she was honest. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know, it must have been something about that year because I have a lot of my memories are from that year. But also I came back and worked in Brisbane uh, the following year in Logan, and um, that was really that was really great for my medicine because again, it's one of those non-hierarchical, get your hands dirty and do lots of medical stuff, and and the team there in many ways were fantastic, but there was still an awful lot of racism. So, mm. you know, I've got no rose-coloured um, glasses when it comes to the some of the hospitals I've worked in and some of the racism you see and injustice and the way people talk about people. You know, it's even. When it's not got a you know racial or sexist sort of context, there's the um, you know treating people as just presentations that that bothered me. I really liked emergency, um, which is where I worked mostly in hospitals. But um, I don't know. I could see myself burning out of that pretty quickly, and mm -hmm. um, and then uh, that's that's what I guess prompted the the move into general practice, okay. uh, just because it was more relationship based. Which I, going through med school and junior doctor years, like I don't know, you're kind of young and um, have a lot of energy and want things to be, but give you a buzz. An emergency gave me a buzz. It was awesome, did, you know, doing you know all those amazing things, which I would, would scare the bejesus out of me now. But um, but I could see, I don't know, some of my older colleagues just look, looked a bit burnt out, and I didn't want to do the shift work. And then the and then I thought actually, you know, the relationship side of things, which kind of surprised me a bit at the time. Um, but I'm so glad I made the move. Like going into general practices was definitely the best thing. So is that where you initially wanted to be when you were doing your medical degree? Like, or did you have views of, of going into a college um, specialising in a different area? Yeah, like, I think the thing with medicine is I just, um, 
I just think the whole way the human body is put together and the biology of it and, and everything around the science of it is just amazing. Like, it's just stunning. Uh, so I really loved all of that. And there was no part of medicine that I didn't like, um, which is, one, I think, one of the signs of that you should be a general practitioner. Um, you know, I like surgery, but I didn't really like the culture of surgeons and I didn't think I wanted to... Um, I don't know, devote my youth to training for that sort of specialty. Um, and I quite like the culture of physicians and, and that sort of in your head stuff, but I think that would have done me in as well. So in the end, I didn't want to really let anything go. You know, I loved delivering babies. That was amazing. Like it was all amazing. <laughs> um, probably, the, and I've spoken about all these terms, but actually the term I did best in was psychiatry. Like I really, you know, all those other terms, I got sort of fives and sixes, which is, you know, fine, but psychiatry was my best mark through through uni in terms of clinical stuff. And I, yeah, so the mental health side of things, that was also really interesting. So I think it's a bit of a sign, um, though I didn't know it at the time, that general practice was probably in my future. Looking yeah. back. That's wonderful. I've got a good friend who um, he was forced into medicine, so didn't want to do it. And he wanted to be a journalist. Right. And he ended up um, he ended up as a psychiatrist. But the reason for that is he could hear story. And so it was his way of, you know, not being a journalist, but getting story, hearing story, but then being able to work with people to help them. But I just thought, yeah, that was fascinating that he was able to mesh his interest into something that he was forced into doing and turned it into a positive. And it sounds like, yeah, you got the whole well, kick and dice by going into GP practice. Yeah, well, I think, um, like I say to a lot, like I really am glad I did medicine, but I think for a lot of people, um, you know, it can make them really miserable. Like, you know, it can be really stressful. It's got quite a high suicide rate. I think you've got to be careful. Um, the, I mean, there are niches for just about any type of personality and person and set of skills, which is good. Um, so it's awesome that you, the person you knew ended up in something that they liked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you've got to be a bit careful with, with medicine. You've, you've, it's, a lot, it's quite stressful and you've got to do things to people's bodies that are you know, pretty awful sometimes and very stressful. And, mm. um, and if, you don't, if you get stuff wrong, then I think that can be quite catastrophic. Um, because of the potential legal and other and sort of ethical and other issues that come up, so I don't know. I think I think it's it's quite tough. But if um, I don't know if you really if you really like it and revel in 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 it, then it's obviously fantastic. But yeah, just got to be a bit careful with it. And just um, touching on that suicide piece for a moment, it seems to be on the rise um, within medicine, and there's been a few. Um, yeah, suicides, unfortunately, recently. And, um, and you know I work in the space. So would mm. you say that it's more stressful to be a doctor today than it was, say, 20 years ago? Jeez, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of in a bit of a bo uh, bubble uh, in many ways um, because, uh, you know, I've, I've ended up in a place with the perfect boss and an awesome set of colleagues and um, I really like my patients so it's hard to say. Um, I'm not sure that it's more stressful. I mean I think you know we worked when I was a young junior doctor pretty long hours. Um, yeah I don't know what it is that's that's going on for med uh, for junior doctors at the moment to be honest. I mean it's always been stressful and I just I wonder about the support. I, I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if we notice each other as much as what we once did and you know there's we're we're in this 
in this um, kind of treadmill, I suppose, of being so busy and um, so many outcomes that we've got to meet and it's go, 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 go. And um, yeah, do we just not notice as much what's going on around us with each other? I don't know, sort of question that pops up in my mind just with this whole COVID mm. kind of regime that we're under at the moment where we have been forced to slow down. Mm. I've noticed because, that. Because, yeah, yeah, mm. we're not as busy and <clears throat> I don't know, for me, I'm sort of putting my head up suddenly and going, oh, this is what the world looks like and I'm noticing a lot more um, about what is going on around me. So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Oh, look, I think there's definitely a... A cultural thing going on that we really need to uh, address and that relates to just the sort of um, continual growth and of you know the economy and, and the pressure to keep produ you know working harder and, and all that sort of stuff I think Australia has a problem with that generally culturally and uh, the lack of um, uh, sense of community I guess I think some people might call it spirituality um, that doesn't sit as well with me but that's just my own cultural thing I think there is definitely a like a lack of community which is an issue that comes out of that as well so you know people knowing their neighbors and having community events and um, I certainly found lockdown um, I was it suited me fairly well just because I'm naturally introverted <laughs> and um, I like the people I live with at home my family which is you know not always the case so I've been super fortunate um, I had a job that I like and could keep doing mm. um, and so the super busyness that was um, afflicting me beforehand just evaporated and so I could concentrate on my family and running and work which I really like <laughs> So uh, I totally hear what you're saying. I really identify with that sense of, you know, having a bit more of a sense to time to reflect. The other thing which was nice was I made a really big, like I've still and, and I'm still am seeing my parents every weekend. Yeah. Um, so just going, you know, just that regular contact, I think is nice because something that ties in with all of this um, thinking, I think, is the devaluing of elders and, and the aged care fiasco that's going on in this country that COVID has really shone a light on. And I read a really interesting article recently about how COVID's sort of shining a light on all the cracks in society, you know, all the bits that have been neglected as we sweep along really quickly in this sort of capitalistic vision are just being you know crushed by COVID because you know they, don't, they can't you know the casualization of the workforce they're all um, there's been a big spotlight thrown on that young people um, I, mean, I hate to be single in this sort of environment yeah, absolutely imagine if you're living by yourself and you know older people and yeah and then you know in the middle of it all you have uh, this unbelievable um, uh, coming to the surface of the of racism in you know various countries, especially the US, obviously is where it was sort of started, but it's no less so in Australia. And then you've got the Black Lives Matter and all the protests, and you know, people in my unit block were muttering about how terrible it was that they were protesting. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, for Aboriginal people, it's probably more dangerous. Racism is probably more dangerous than Corona. Um, if you look at the life expectancy figures, and they are super responsible. There's not been a case linked back to those protests. So I don't know. There's just it just shone a light on lots of stuff. I think, which is fascinating. And 
It's definitely been illuminating, that's for sure. And um, yeah, I like your comment about it shined a light on the cracks in society. And um, I think mm -hmm. our role as being a citizen as well and a good citizen rather than an individual. And as a citizen, you know, it's about the mm -hmm. collective. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And you see that obviously, most obviously in the United States, which oh. has a hugely individualistic culture. That's right. And the complete inability to act as a community is just devastating. Yeah. 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 I've been practicing gratitude. Yeah, and I don't know, I love it. <laughs> just being grateful for the little things. Yeah. And yeah, so COVID, yeah, COVID has been interesting. So you talked about this wonderful boss would you like to tell us who it is and then how you ended up working there? So uh, general practice, I think one of the things that had put me off general practice when I was going through medical school was I had a suburban, I had a rural term, which was amazing. Like it really fitted all the bills for me as far as medicine goes. It was incredible, but it was kind of burbling away in the back of my mind and, and it was killed off a little bit by an urban experience I had, suburban white general practice. I think it was in the affluent eastern suburbs of Brisbane. It was just boring. Um, <laughs> and so that really put me off general practice for years, I reckon. Um, so I was really worried about that when it came to picking terms. And there was a, uh, back in the day, it's still sort of like this, but there was the university general practice in Anala, And I remember going through there, there were people like um, Paul Glazier and Chris Delmar and Michael Yelland and Jane Smith and Claire Ma, just, just a bunch of GPs who were right into evidence-based medicine and academia. I just was in an area of Anala. Like I'd always thought with my medical skills, I wanted to, you know, um, use them in an area where they were sort of needed um, or going to be useful. And I didn't know all that much about Anala, but I thought the combination of... Um, uh, I'd liked those sort of places to work when I was in hospitals like Logan, for example. So I just thought Anala would be an interesting place to work and um, and the, the group of GPs would be interesting. And so that's why I signed up and did my basic training there. And down the end of the corridor, uh, in a couple of little boxes, boxy rooms, was uh, three Aboriginal people who just had this huge, inspiring impact on my life. So there's Annette Rabbit, who's the Aboriginal health worker. She's just a wonderful person and um, um, she's, she's been a little bit absent from Manala recently because she's a bit older and she's worried about COVID, which is understandable. Yeah. And Nola White, who was the nurse unit manager, she's just a wonderful woman. Uh, and she was really my cultural mentor for quite a long time um, until she retired just recently. And uh, Noel Heyman, of course. And uh, Noel's hugely inspirational figure and um, I didn't know him until I uh, started working there in 2002. And, He'd had a registrar, uh, one of the registrars before me in that practice, just do a session on a Thursday for him. And um, I indicated an interest, I guess. I just, again, I think because of that interest in cross-cultural things. And, you know, mum, uh, after protesting the Vietnam War, had gone on to work in for the ABC, um, working for Radio National. She did uh, the program Encounter on a Sunday morning for 25 years. And so she did a lot of programs with Aboriginal people. So it was always sort of a conversation that was sort of in the background in our house. Um, and uh, I don't know, there was just, yeah, just interested me, I guess, that to, to know more about, because I'd worked for MSF in Honduras by that stage. So I'd come back and was um, just, and had been with the Indigenous people in Honduras. So I was like, you know, what's going on for the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in the country I grew up in? 
And uh, yeah, Noel's just this um, legend, really. He's, he's uh, got a very infectious laugh. Like when he uh, starts laughing, you can hear it all over the service. It's a great sound. <laughs> um, and he just, you know, the patients love him. He loves them. Uh, he's hugely optimistic, positive fella. Um, very smart and yeah he's a visionary and uh, uh, so I worked with him uh, as the next registrar on a Thursday morning for about six months I think and then he'd managed to get uh, to keep his bulk billing money which means he could employ a doctor um, and uh, he said do you want a job when I finished my training and I, look, and I went home to Donna my partner and you know we talked about it and and I went, yeah, okay, sure, give it a go. And uh, what's there? What can I lose? And it was just uh, obviously, you know, best decision I've ever made. And basically, I've just deepened that uh, rut or groove um, ever since, really. And uh, he obviously was, you know, hugely dynamic and um, managed to get funding for um, the service grew. And and because you know he could employ more doctors with more Medicare, and just sort of snowballed into its own. Uh, sort of standalone service on the floor below, which was a bit of a pit. And we worked out of three consult rooms for a while. I remember going and looking at that. Yeah, it was yeah. hard. It was yeah. hard down there. Like if you wanted to go to the toilet, you'd have to go into the um, enormously full waiting room because, you know, he was, you know, the, the famous story, of course, is that Noel started with 12 people and, um, you know, went and talked to the elders and talked to the community about what they wanted and Obviously, being an Aboriginal doctor in the in the place really started to attract a following, and then it just um, went took off basically. So we'd have this waiting room that was, you know, full of people um, in this little clinic that really didn't meet our needs. You know, we're doing immunisations in the corridor and all this sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, eventually managed to um, to get funding for a standalone building. Um, and what a standalone building yeah, that's it right. is. <laughs> so in the late afternoon, it casts a shadow over the, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> over old the old building, building <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so we moved over there. I can't remember. It'd be five or six years ago now. And uh, it was just amazing. So yeah, I, did, I had no idea that I was going to end up on this journey or, or it's just been an amazing ride with Noel. So, mm. you know, he's, a, he's not a micromanager. He hates that sort of management um, uh, he's just sort of much more into the visionary stuff and doing a sort of really inspiring job. He, he works incredibly hard. Like he sees more patients than any, all of, almost all of us put together. Um, and yet, you know, does a really good job. And, and how many, yeah. How many um, clients would you have at the Anala Clinic now? So last count is 3,800 regular clients. Wow. Yeah. And how many coming in from um, more sort of wider areas than just... Um, yeah, so it's 35 or 36 percent, I think, are from postcode 4077, which mm -hmm. is the famous Anala postcode. Yeah. Um, it's interesting though, when we started uh, with the pit clinic, that was before IUE had really taken off, yeah. and uh, possibly Kabul to a great extent as yeah, well. Kabul. When when did? <laughs> so 2000. We're talking 2008. I think we went to the pit. Okay. Or six or seven or somewhere around there. The pit. I love it. <laughs> it felt like a pit. It was no window in the room. It was just oh awful. Oh, my goodness. The pit. Yeah, Kabul took off. Um, so it's 20 years old, but it was a sleepy okay. little clinic and it needed some dynamite under it, essentially, to get it moving because uh, we unfortunately had GPs in there that were not doing the right thing and so they were seeing eight clients a day, you mm, know, wow. because... 
back in the day, the GPs were paid a wage rather than a fee for service, and so they weren't um, they weren't being forced to work in terms of their Medicare billings. Wow. And so we had a really big problem there until we sacked those doctors. But that that's another story, and they did go to the media, and that's another story. Oh, wow. um, but we shifted the whole culture of that place, and once the reins were given to the Aboriginal community and the Aboriginal community took control of that situation, we started to see, you know, really, really big change. But yeah, we had to get rid of those doctors initially. And, um, and, you know, the I, I want to speak about this man just briefly, but um, um, Uncle Darby McCarthy, he was Australia's first Aboriginal jockey, travelled all over the world. He was incredible. And he and I fronted a community forum after, because I was actually the chair of Carvel at that point, after I'd sacked these doctors. And the community wanted to kill me because they had this view that any doctor was better than no doctor at all. And my argument was that our mob deserved to have the best GPs working in the practice. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's what we were going to go for. And so anyway, the community were not happy and I was kind of trying to challenge them. But I was a lot younger back then too and they were my elders. So it was a really difficult conversation. And in the end, Uncle Darby stood up and he banged his fist down on the table and he said, right, when it comes to the health um, of our children and the education of our children, so the health and education of our children, they deserved and deserve the best. And everyone kind of went, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, Uncle Darby. And I'm like, that's what I was trying to say, but no one was listening. But he backed me and with that, we we started what a moment. to come out. Oh, it was a big moment. Yeah. yeah, I was either going to be strung up by my toenails, <laughs> or somebody was going to take pity on me and rescue me. And Uncle Darby did. <laughs> yeah, but it, it does take bravery. And I know for um, for Dr. Noel, like it was an incredible journey. And you've been on it with him. Yeah, so I feel very fortunate. So I think back in the day, we we had people from northern New South Wales and Sherberg and north northern Brisbane and from all over the place, basically. Um, but I think with the success of IU, which is just, they've done an amazing job of um, getting access to primary care. Um, so it's, it's um, I think we could get a lot more people from the Inala, Acacia Ridge, Ellen Grove, Red Bank, Plains, out to Ipswich sort of, um, sort of area. Um, so it's, I think it's come down a bit, but yeah, it was, I mean, it's like a lot of things with Aboriginal health, people will travel a long way to get a safe uh, room where they can see someone safely. It's like, you know, people talk about from Sydney talk about travelling all the way in from Western Sydney into Redfern to, yes. to the AMS or all the way into Wollongabba for the for their care because it was the only place they felt safe. Yeah. And that's a really big piece around this, isn't it? That cultural safety mm, absolutely. piece. So you you talked about your love of academia and you know and and obviously your love of medicine and you've been able to bring them together. Um, in a beautiful way because you also work here at UQ in the Division of General Practice. So what do you do there? Uh, well, these days I mainly do research. Um, I've 
like always done teaching um, and still do some, do some teaching. But and you challenge our students, which I really love. So which, um, yeah, just for the listeners. So Jeff is very much about challenging students around their own biases. And, um, and I think it's, a, it's impactful when a non-Indigenous person can stand up and inform uh, in a way that is is almost speaking then to the the, the audience who are generally um, non-Indigenous. And I think that, you know, there, there's a powerful piece to play for the non-Indigenous voice when it's informed and you do it in a really good way. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, obviously you're never going to replace um, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person um, and you're never going to talk about Indigenous knowledge. You, you're going to be talking about a particular perspective, as you say. Um, and I think there are a couple of elements to that. So with my journey, I remember sitting in a thing, in a lecture. It was at UQ and it was right back at the beginning of my journey and I was like, all right, so there's this gap. If I'm not going to be racist about it and there's not, not something intrinsically wrong with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, what, what on earth is going on here? Mm. Um, and it actually took quite a while. It's quite a journey to work out um, what it is and to understand it properly. And, uh, you know, now it's crystal clear that it comes back to racism and the initial colonisation event, which had enormous racism bound up in it. Mm. Um, you know, Aboriginal people were even people and they were, um, you know, just part of the flora and fauna. And then you, you see the horrific uh, spreading like a wave of massacres across the country and accompanying news reports of how the extermination of the natives was most satisfactorily going on, which was in the Mirabra Chronicle, which um, relates to the story I tell medical students about my mother's history in Bundaberg. And, uh, and you can start to then understand the intergenerational trauma of that. And I talked to medical students about um, my own intergenerational success. So my grandfather made a fortune on what was Aboriginal land. He came to it after it had been taken and made a mozza in sugar and uh, also benefited from, I don't think he personally benefited from Kanaka labour, but it certainly would have helped set the place up. Um, and he had the money to send my mother to university who then met my father, who both had uni sort of, I guess, ideas, and they brought me up like that. And then I show a picture of myself graduating and my little girls, who now go to state high. And I say, look, if any of this, you know, rings true, that you can see how you've had this intergenerational privilege handed down through generations, then, um, and that rings true to you, then perhaps you can also see that for the people, and I talk about a massacre in Bundaberg, um, then you can see that the people who survive, the kids who survive that massacre and, and have that as their history would perhaps, you know, be doing it really tough at the moment and, and it would be really hard, especially if you'd also had your land taken and culture taken and language taken and all the stuff that I find really fascinating and can't imagine not having, like imagine having all of that removed. Um, yeah, it's making me <laughs> feel emotional thinking about it. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess that's how I challenge... Um, and how Med do students, students react to that? Like, can you see them sort of struggling internally with themselves? Do you get feedback afterwards where they've gone away and really had to think about that? Like, what, what happens? So I put a cahoots quiz up at the beginning, which reflects um, that initial thought about, you know, the journey. I, I take myself back to the start of the journey when I really didn't know and how it was quite a long, difficult journey to get to where I am now. And, you know, you're always learning, of course. 
Um, so I put a lot of that stuff in the cahoots that I just think they probably don't know. And being med students, they often get, some of them get zero out of 10, which kills them because they're all high achievers. <laughs> and you can, and I've had feedback. It's like, <laughs> like I'm open to this stuff, but I can't believe I got zero out of 10. So they're like, so it really can wakes you them. Can <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it really wakes them up for the, the lecture. I mean, we've had, um, we have, you know, there's always five or 10% who totally get it and are right on board. There's, you know, I think the stunned masses. And then you have the ones who you hear through, like the, for example, you've got your um, white Aboriginal students in the room who hear the racism um, and hear the conversations afterwards and that's been reported back to us, which is pretty distressing. So I, Warren and I now start with a bit of a, a caveat about, you know, this could be quite confronting. We're coming at it in good faith. We're not here to make you feel bad, but if you need to be very careful about how you react, because there are going to be people in the audience who feel differently. And also it'll impact on your reputations. I very clearly remember, and I say this, I very clearly remember what some of my peers said at med school, and I don't refer to them, even though they're specialists and I'm now a GP. So you want to be very careful because what you say after this session could have an impact on your future income, even if you don't agree with it. So, um, yeah, I don't know, just you, you sort of learn to get confronted up front, I guess. You get, you get varying reactions. And, you know, I remember from med school there would have been a cohort in our year who would have just been totally derisive about it. Yeah, medicine's not in, you know, it's in many ways the apex of white privilege, really. Um, they're all in, enormously privileged to, to be in the room and... I think it's really important um, you referred to the white Aboriginal and, you know, that that all sits behind the assimilation policy and this whole um, idea that you could breed the colour out in three generations. But it's this this really interesting piece that sits around Aboriginal people's identity. And, you know, for those with paler skin and, you know, and I, for example, people think I'm Italian. Um, I don't often get asked if I'm Aboriginal and yet my mother is very dark skinned. Um, but yeah, it, it's confronting being on the other side of that as the Aboriginal person oh, in the room and you're hearing these comments and um, I'll often come out like now but when I was a lot younger um, I used to feel really challenged because I didn't feel safe to say hey I'm Aboriginal and that's really offensive because I didn't have the skills back then to be able to stand up in a way that wasn't aggressive you know so if I did open my mouth it would be you know what are you blah blah's talking about and and you can't say that because I didn't have my own identity strong enough to be able to articulate a really strong comment. Sometimes I hear things even now like um, a couple of years ago I was in a um, a dress shop and this woman you know it was a very lardy da dress shop and this woman asked me what I did and I told her and um, and she said to me Oh, she said, gee, you must have um, a lot of patience to to work with those poor souls. Mm. And my daughter was with me and she was holding my hand and she scrunched it and I scrunched her hand back. And my daughter was looking at me like, what is she going to do? Because she knows I can fire up. And I just said, it's an absolute privilege. And I didn't even try to take her on because I would have needed a week locked up in a room with her 
to to break it down and then get her where I wanted her to be at that point in time. So I don't know, sometimes I think you choose your battles as well and I just did not have the energy for it on that day. Oh, I mean, I think, and also I think uh, when I say, I mean, whiteness really refers not to Aboriginal people. (laughs) I should have said (laughs) paler skinned. But um, I just think it's, you know, white people's responsibility to, to um, educate ourselves about that. I think one of the great privileges of working with Noel and Nola and Annette and all the Aboriginal people I've worked with and, and had as patients, you know, they're inspiring and brilliant and they undo all that um, racism that you kind of pick up just from living in Australia. Yeah. And so you have these conversations where people talk about poor souls and but it was just this idea that that there would have been all these inspiring Aboriginal people who I would have worked with. Like there was just there was this real unusual concept yeah. to some people yeah. and just that pervasive, um, I guess, deficit view mm. is something that, you know, white people have a real responsibility to, to overcome. And, yeah. and that's where, you know, we really need to work on those, you know, we were talking about it before, some of the way... Aboriginal people have presented in medical case studies and things like that. Absolutely. Mm. And how it just buys into those stereotypes, yeah. So finally, how how are your children growing up in terms of having, you know, this dad who's very much social justice-minded and I'm sure your partner as well. So can you see those teachings going into your children and how's that mirrored back at you? It's hard to say with uh, Soph and Luce. Like, I think with all the kids, um, like I'm proud of all. I've got two step kids as well, and uh, I'm proud of all of them. I think they all uh, are very aware of how I feel about you know. There's there's those sort of um, you know racist discourses at high school, for example, and homophobic discourses and sexist discourses, and I think they've all been. They're all really good with that stuff and call it out. And yeah. um, so, you know, I'm really proud of them on that level. Um, I don't know. I, th- I, I don't know how, how it's going to play out with them. Um, they're all very different. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, one of my, my stepson's a teacher. So I think he's, uh, you know, been probably the most vocal about that stuff at his school. But yeah, I don't, don't know. We'll see. We'll watch this space. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It'll be interesting. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time today. And as usual, and yeah, it was a, um, a pleasure to have you and talk with you. And I learned a little bit about you today that I didn't know either. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so thanks very much. Pleasure, Marie. Thank you for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed today's Yarn with UQ's Jeff Sperling and what has been the final episode of UQ Yarns for 2020. As we head into the holiday season, I would like to thank you all for tuning in and joining me with some wonderful conversations with our inspirational guests. I'm excited for what 2021 will bring and look forward to connecting and having a yarn with more of our community members. To catch up on other episodes in the meantime, please visit our website medicine.uq.edu.au forward slash uq yarns.